big well, the big winner in our book all the time, of course, is Paul O'Sullivan. And it's really good to have you on the show to, uh, today, Paul, as ever. Uh, we've got a story uh, that is based on work that Forensics for Justice has been doing, looking below the radar, below the top guys at Eskom and where the corruption was going on there. And maybe the best way to, to handle this is just to go back to the whistleblower who approached you and why. Uh, well, obviously, as you know, the the whistleblower, shall, shall we call him that, but he is actually the BE shareholder of the company that was set up to avail of a, a rather sizable project at ESCOM. And when I say sizable, we're talking uh, in, in the billions of rand. And the arrangement he entered into uh, with the company was that he would become a 30% shareholder and they, he didn't really have to do anything. And I think you really have to be suspicious if you don't have to do anything. But your name is there and you signed for the IDC loans and so on and so forth. And that's what he did. And then after two or three years, he started getting suspicious and he came to me. And we looked into it and we've uncovered a massive fraud and corruption um, and payments to senior managers at ESCOM. The guy uh, owns 35% of the company, so presumably something must have sparked his suspicion. Yeah, well, I think it's quite often what happens is uh, there was a steady deterioration in the relationship, which started probably last year, and it reached a point where he, you know, there were unfriendly letters going backwards and forwards, and then then he approached us and he said he suspected that there was hanky panky going on. And we started looking into it, and we managed to go and speak to another person who is now a whistleblower. Um, and they brought us a whole lot of documentation, which clearly shows that this company, in order to gain these lucrative contracts from ESCOM, um, paid millions and millions of rand to a senior ESCOM employee. And they did so. They weren't very smart about, you know, they left quite a, a, a nice audit trail. Um, so they put together invoices, and even the invoices themselves had VAT numbers on, so there was VAT included. But when we ran the VAT numbers on the SARS system, we found that actually there were fake VAT numbers. Um, and, 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 you know, at the end of the day, the whole thing was just completely fraudulent. We've already uncovered payments exceeding 20 million rand to that senior employee. And then that senior employee had a level of authority uh, within ESCOM, uh, and that enabled him and his management team to, within budget, spend up to 750 million rand or place orders uh, to the tune of 750 million rand without having to get board approval. That's a big number. Uh, yeah. 750 million. He, uh, his name is uh, Tlakudi. Uh, yes. Is he. Uh, how far below Brian Molefi was this guy if he had signing power over 750 million rand? Well, he was a, a procurement executive. Um, he was a very senior person. Hmm. He would have probably, I mean, in the big scheme of things, ESCOM is a massive company. Um, he would have probably, if you, if you took at levels, he'd probably be three or four levels below uh, Malefi. But the point we made is that, you know, when you've got bad leadership in any company, 
or the leadership is distracted doing its own thing. And in this case, we now know, as a result of the Sondo Commission, you had um, the senior executives of ESCOM prior to Brian Malefi were all turfed out. They were suspended and got rid of. And we now know that Dudu Mayeni and her son Talenti Mayeni and an ex-Rhodesian magistrate by the name of Nick Lanell, they met with the then chairman of ESCOM and uh, Jacob Zuma, and they plotted and schemed, and that's also on our website, they plotted and schemed as to how they would get rid of these senior executives, and they duly did. They got rid of them, and they opened the door then for the likes of um, Brian Malefi and his his friends in, in, in crime. And um, they came on board. They quickly did a repeat of what they did at Transnet or you know, they got into bed with the Guptas and Tegeta and so on and so forth, and they raped the country, uh, the company. Mm. And while they were doing that, the managers at the lower level thought, well, if they can do it, because everybody must have been able to see what was going on. Um, I mean, we've we've met with some of the other senior managers at ESCOM, and we hear stories like coal being dug up from mine A, which happens to be adjacent to power station A, coal being dug up from mine B, which happens to be adjacent to power station B. And the coal from mine B is transported by road to power station A. And the coal from uh, mine A is transported to power station B because the managers can make more money on the kickbacks. So that kind of massive cost incurrence that was taking place, all it did was increase the cost of of, of electricity. And of course, it led to a situation where they deliberately allowed the stockpiles of coal to go down so that they could use emergency purchasing uh, procedures and bypass normal procurement regulations and spend billions and billions of rand with companies owned by the Guptas. How, how crooked is it? Because this guy, Antonio Trinidadi, the chap that you've outed here with his company, Tabula Construction Projects, got billions of rands worth of contracts by paying this, this crooked Lakudi fellow. How, how deep does the rot go? Or how well, deep did it go at Eskim? I mean, we, we thought it was quite funny because when we started looking into this fellow, Lakudi, we heard that he was at loggerheads with Coco. Now, you know, um, they were dishing dirt on each other. Hmm. <laughs> you know, there's no honor among thieves. But um, the, the good news is that he's gone from ESCOM now. But I think what what's happened is that the people have forgotten, oh, by the way, you know, he was responsible for an overspend at these power stations. This was Kusili power station where there's been a massive overspend and the project still isn't finished. It's, it's more or less coming to its end now. But, I mean, it should have been finished two years ago. So who pays for all this? Well, it's you, me, and everybody else that buys electricity. Well, clearly we know that. We know that government's in trouble. We know that there's billions of rands of taxpayers' money that's already been put in and more that's going to be. But I guess taxpayers are saying, how can we pay for all of this and be expected to perhaps pay another one percentage or two percentage more on VAT when nobody's gone to jail yet. How does that whole process work, Paul? Well, I, you know, I'm, I, as you know, I'm very positive about the future of South Africa. I always have been, even, even when I was getting dragged off a plane and carted off to jail to be tortured. 
But the the bottom line is that um, the wind has changed direction. And I agree with uh, Shamila Batori's um, approach, and that is they're not going to rush out and start collaring people. When you arrest people and bring them before court and it's not ready for prosecution, you run the risk of the matter being thrown out of court. And then there's all sorts of legal issues that are attached to that. So what we've suggested, and I've written to her, in fact, on that point, I've said, look, there are a number of cases, and you, if you take this particular case with this fellow Trindadi and his fellow directors at Tubular Group of Companies, they clearly were at it for a long time. And if you're going to investigate and prosecute them on every single offence that they've committed, the trial is going to last 10 or 15 years. So what we've done, we've said, look here, there's some low-hanging fruit. There's copies of invoices, the invoice with copies of the bank statements. There's the payment vouchers. The money was paid short and simple. It amounts to a gratification. It was corruption. Nail them. So that's the approach we're taking. And I think it has to be that approach. If you have to prosecute, for example, Brian Malethi on everything that he did wrong or is alleged to have done wrong, that trial would drag on for years. And it's not really going to make a lot of difference to the sentence that he's going to get. So what they need to do is pick the low-hanging fruit Mm -hmm. and go after those people. We opened a docket in August last year pertaining to Vincent Smith, the MP who was taking kickbacks from Basasa. Now, we put all the evidence together, we opened the docket, and to this date, nothing has happened. So, yeah, I think we've got to complete the exercise of uncapturing the criminal justice system. Shamila Batoi herself cannot go out there and prosecute and have all these people arrested and run the trials. She has to have good people below her to do that. And that process is taking shape quite nicely. And I should imagine, you you might have heard this from me before, but there will be arrests before Christmas. <laughs> Which Christmas? <laughs> yeah, no, Christmas 2019. I'm uh, joking, Paul. I'm pulling no your leg. <laughs> and in the case of this fellow, we've asked in our docket, we've asked the police to seize his passport mm-hmm. because him and his family members all have dual passports. They have... Um, Portuguese passports and there's a great incentive for him not to hang around. Paul O'Sullivan, uh, South Africa's uh, investigative sleuth.